Well, good afternoon. I'm going to have to be very quick today because we're going to cover the subject of quantum computing in 20 minutes. And we have with us today uh, Richard Hopkins, the senior quantum ambassador from IBM. Uh, I love that. It sounds like he's coming from outer space. But uh, Richard is a fellow of the Royal Academy of Engineering and, as I said, the senior quantum ambassador for IBM. Uh, he does a lot of exciting things, but you've read his CV twice, so I shan't repeat it because you want to get to the meat of the matter. Um, we're going to be covering, as I say, uh, quantum computing, and it's an area that we here at CN have been involved with uh, really since we started, uh, in fact, slightly before we started in 1994, having helped to establish the European Institute for Quantum Computation uh, back in 1997 and running some trials on quantum encryption, which is a different subject with the Bank of England in 99. Um, so anyway, you know me, I'm Michael Mainali, I'm one of the directors of Zien, and it really is a privilege to be able to introduce so many of these fantastic and interesting webinars, which we're only able to do thanks to the tolerance and generosity of our sponsors who do allow us to range widely and freely across technology, economics, and finance. And you might say, well, what's quantum computing got to do with technology, economics, and finance? Well, in a sense, probably everything, the PN future is certainly technological. Uh, we're gonna be talking about the economics and as an economist and a, and a statistician and in fact, a computer scientist, I've always been interested in the application of this to optimization problems. In particular for me, the traveling salesman problem, but there are a couple of other problems there that uh, Richard will I'm sure touch on and we can uh, go on, on the questions. Um, so it's definitely in those areas. And in finance in particular, we've had a couple of webinars on people already using bits of quantum computation and portfolio uh, and load balancing issues. So definitely a, a, a matter of interest to all of us. Meanwhile, uh, the agenda today, as ever, is the same. Uh, we're going to, I'm going to get out of the way as quickly as possible so we get as much time with our expert, Richard, uh, and three points of housekeeping. Yes, this is being recorded. Uh, in this unusual circumstance, no, the slides will not be available. The recording will be in approximately two working days. So it should be up uh, sometime uh, Wednesday, uh, sorry, Thursday afternoon. Uh, and the third bit is how do you participate? How, what is this Q&A stuff? Please uh, type your questions, comments, observations into the GoToWebinar chat room. Richard will get a copy of everything with your email attached so he can get back to you. If you wanna point something out to him, uh, feel free to, whatever. I will weave those into a conversation with Richard, but please do use the GoToWebinar chat room. I'm not looking at my emails. I'm not watching Twitter. <laughs> I'm, I'm not on Signal or WhatsApp or WeChat. I'm here with you. Uh, so please use the facility there to communicate to Richard uh, what you'd like. Well, I think that's uh, my three minutes, so hopefully we're gonna get this thing done in 20. Uh, Richard, uh, may I start with a really quick uh, poll of everybody? Do you think you understand quantum computing? Yes, no, or somewhere in the middle? I have a basic understanding. Uh, Richard, we have a very opinionated audience, fingers on the buzzers, over 50% have voted as I expected. Oh, we're gonna get this thing done in 19 minutes, I can feel it. We'll just present those results, but most of the audience haven't voted. And the answer is, Richard, you're speaking to an audience who believe that they could really benefit from your guidance. So with no more ado, Richard, uh, may I hand over to you, the floor is yours. Thank you, Michael, much appreciated. So, uh, back to the beginning and 20 minutes. Uh, so, we are a small planet, we have big problems, we all know that, and quantum computing is important because we think it could be the mechanism by which we start to approach problems that we find intractable today. For example, fixating nitrogen without using the Harbour-Bosch process takes about one and a half percent of the world's gas supply 
to create the fertilizer we use, plants do it with an enzyme. Perhaps we could do the same. Uh, catalysts to capture uh, carbon dioxide. Uh, new ways of modeling uh, financial uh, futures so that we can increase the stability and the predictability of the health of banks and financial institutions. Or possibly even you know, in the areas of molecular chemistry and, 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 and looking at things like the nature of antibiotics uh, and drug-resistant antibiotics. These are all terribly, terribly difficult problems. Quantum won't solve them directly, but it can or could provide, if we get the engineering right, uh, the mechanisms to approach those problems in ways that we've been able to do before. So IBM's goal as a provider of quantum computing is quantum computing that is useful to the world. You know, we're not interested in computing the Gaussian distribution of bosons. Um, we are interested in doing real world stuff. And also, whilst we're about it, making the world quantum safe by using quantum safe algorithms, which uh, we've been working with NIST on a lot. The roots of quantum computing come from Richard Feynman um, of uh, Manhattan Project fame and, and elsewhere, uh, but of course also quantum mechanics. And his view was that if you wanted to understand nature in any level of detail, then you actually had to use a quantum computer. No one really knew what a quantum computer was at that point, but we've been struggling with that question for some time. You'd think with today's supercomputers that we'd be able to solve pretty much any kind of problem. When you look at the raw power and computational capabilities, we can simulate all kinds of things. We can actually uh, uh, compute uh, incredibly complex uh, reactions and capabilities. Uh, but but, but, but the, the, the trouble is that a lot of the things we work with in the scientific field are exponential problems. They, they get they, 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 they become they double every time you add a new factor into the equation in terms of the complexity. So there are a whole bunch of questions that, such as the traveling salesman thing we talked about earlier, that we simply can't adequately address today, even using the world's most powerful supercomputers. And of course, the other thing is that, you know, as we bring on board supercomputers and, and ever more powerful machine learning algorithms, you know, we are doubling the power that we use for these kind of things every three and a half months at the moment. Okay, that's a that's that's a that's a hell of a curve, um, and we've got to get off that kind of route of of burning more and more power to be able to make scientific progress. So we think quantum is at the heart of being able to do that. Why? Well, look at a relatively simple molecule like caffeine. Okay, just to model caffeine would actually require a classical computer with roughly the same number of bits as about 10% of the atoms in the Earth, 10 to the 48, okay? That's not possible. And that's one of the reasons why we're still stuck with the Harbour-Bosch process over 100 years since it was invented with all its, in, you know, with all its in, inefficiency and everything else. We can't understand the process of that enzyme, nitrogenase, well enough to be able to model it, to be able to turn it into a catalyst. So quantum has that capability. Let me explain why in those 20 minutes. So this is what a quantum computer looks like today with its clothes off. Thankfully, I've got my clothes on. Um, but this is a cryogenic chamber in which we actually cool the quantum computer down to about 13 millikelvin or so to ensure that the outside world is isolated away from what's going on inside the machine. Because what we're doing 
is kind of the reverse of CERN. CERN blows things up with using huge amounts of power. We are trying to manipulate the incredibly small and delicate using absolutely minuscule amounts of power. You may remember that back in the 90s, uh, IBM spelt his name using xenon atoms by placing them on, you know, this is a direct result of all that technology coming through um, to enable us to get down to the ability to manipulate the very small that allows us to create a quantum computer that uses the, the capabilities of the very small. So today we, we use bits. You're all familiar with bits, zeros and ones. And hopefully you're all familiar with, with how we use bits, which is in logical circuits. Quantum computers use something called qubits. Now qubits are a little bit different. A qubit that's in a coherent state can occupy anywhere on the surface of that sphere or on the block sphere. And the kind of program you can do on it looks remarkably like, for those of you who used to use machine code in the, uh, uh, or assembler code in the 1980s or before, um, as I used to, um, we can act on, on quantum qubits using gates. Um, so these are gates that are enabling us to manipulate one or more qubits to do certain things. So they, they kind of feel very similar to normal computers of today. You've got bits and qubits and you've got gates versus instructions. What's the real difference? Well, the real difference is that the combination of any qubit can be in both the zero and the one state simultaneously. When you measure it, Schrodinger's cat, you always end up with a zero or one. But fundamentally, as its computation goes through, you can, you can get each qubit into a superposition state of zeros and ones which means that there's essentially a little bit more information in a qubit than there is in a normal bit in a computer. And you can, but you can do normal things. You can flip between a zero state and a one state by using an X gate as shown here. Or you can do some things that are a bit more unusual like the Hadamard gate, which allows you to actually rotate the state of the, uh, of the qubit from being the zero state to sitting somewhere on the equator, okay? By rotating it through 90 degrees. Now it's got a 50% chance of being in the zero state or 50% chance of the one state, zero state when you measure it. But until you measure it, and the thing you've got to get into your head is, it's in both those states, equally likely. But that's not really where the power comes from in quantum computation. Where the computation power comes from is that when we write down the states of those qubits, here it is, where we've got a qubit represented as those two different states, a mixture of zero and one. When you've got one qubit, that's fine. But when you entangle qubits together so that mathematically you can't separate out their states, you'll notice that two qubits can now only be written because they're entangled as four qubit state dimensions. So suddenly we've doubled the amount of information that's in there. Ah, but you say, well, we've doubled the number of qubits. Yes, but this is an exponential problem. So every time we add another qubit in, it adds another set of dimensions, which increases the number of state dimensions, as you can see on the picture there, by a factor of two. So all those really hard exponential problems we were talking about, where you put another thing into the mix, it doubles the difficulty of, of solving the problem. And there's lots of those problems out there that we don't tackle in business today, simply because it's too hard and it would be too expensive to tackle them. Well, a quantum machine can use this ability to double the number of states every entangled qubit to enable you to get to some very large numbers of states with relatively small numbers of entangled qubits. And this is using that fundamental force of nature of, of superposition and entanglement to enable us to represent those states 
within a coherent quantum computation capability, i.e. within the quantum computer. So today um, we have, well, uh, last year we announced the Eagle chip, which had 127 qubits. So the number of states that it can potentially represent is quite large. Um, and recently, um, a few weeks ago, we announced the 433 qubit chip. So the number of states it can represent is somewhat larger than the number of observation, uh, uh, number of atoms that are observable within the universe. Okay, so this is why quantum is different. It doesn't compute things in the same way. It doesn't parallelize things. It doesn't run algorithms in the same way. You create complex states in its essentially in the qubits that are entangled together, and then you use interference and various other techniques to ease the information out of the quantum machine, usually by running the program many thousands of times, so you can actually get out a probability distribution curve or an estimate of what the quantum computer has been asked to look at. Now, this all may sound like science fiction to you, but quantum computing is, is real. We've had over 50 quantum computers on the web since we put them there in 2016. Uh, a lot of them are free to use. You can go on there right now and play with them. We're running about 4 billion circuits a day at the moment. Okay. Now, not one of those circuits we've run so far has managed to do something that a conventional supercomputer couldn't do. All right. So we haven't got to the point where we've declared victory with quantum computing, saying this is you know, a commercially viable proposition for everyday use, but that's what we're working on. Okay. So it's an incredibly exciting field, and that's, but by the way, that's what the computer, quantum computer looks like with its, with its clothes on, okay? Um, and the key areas where we're going to see quantum computing being important, initially it's in the area where the metaphor distance or the translatable distance, if you like, of what the quantum computer can do versus the actual real-world metaphor analogy that we're trying to get to is relatively small, you know? So, if you want to model a quantum system, as Richard Feynman said, the best thing to do is use a quantum computer. So for quantum chemistry, for material science, high energy physics, CERN, for example, are, are using quantum computers to help, under, help develop the kind of computations to maybe understand dark matter and, and dark energy and this kind of thing. So initially, we're going to see those scientific applications coming through. But they're quite exciting. You know, I've covered some of those at the beginning of the presentation. They are potentially world-changing things in their own right. Not far behind them, though, is artificial intelligence. Um, recently, we created a machine learning model um, based on uh, uh, the Smarter Payments uh, software that IBM uses, which um, uh, basically uh, runs a, a lot of uh, fraudulent, you know, detects an awful lot of fraudulent transactions in the real world today, I think most of the transactions in financial transactions in France run through it, for example. Um, we were actually able to stand up a quantum machine learning algorithm side by side um, with the best, you know, XGBoost and, and random forest algorithms side by side and, and got very similar results, um, even on today's noisy quantum supercomputers. Um, and then what we did was we actually turned it into an ensemble algorithm where we're using them side by side. And we we're able to improve on the state of the art in terms of detecting fraud. So artificial intelligence, machine learning, especially in the areas like classification problems and this kind of thing, fraud detection, pattern recognition, you know, this is one of the areas that I think we'll see some very early results 
coming through in the next few years. Uh, and then finally, slightly further out than that, is that ability to model the future, is the ability to understand you know, from a wide and much more complex context than possibly we'd use today, many more dimensions, many more facets, the ability to, to do things like portfolio optimization or, uh, or Monte Carlo type analysis of, of, of what the most likely outcomes are and, and, and how to, you know, how much, how much, how much money a, a bank would have to keep in reserve to, to maintain its regulatory stability and this kind of thing. So some very exciting longer term applications in the optimization space. So, and this, I will not read out, but it gives you an idea of how many different places we think this thing applies, which is why we think it's so important. You know, there is a, there, you know, those, those base categories translate into an awful lot of real world applications. So for example, we've got Mercedes-Benz using the technology to develop new materials, new batteries and the like. We've got um, uh, people, uh, ExxonMobil, looking at um, uh, how you optimize the transfer of liquid natural gas around the world. Uh, that's relatively uh, <clears throat> uh, prescient at the moment, I think. Um, you know, uh, when you've got a shortage uh, of capability and supply, um, optimizing that, the traveling salesman, as we were talking about, problem is, is really important. Um, JP Morgan Chase, uh, looking specifically at futures using Amplitude that estimation um, and Monte Carlo type things to, to move forward on that. I apologies for my mad dog in the background. Um, and also, um, they've recently published a further paper um, that follows on from their earlier work, which shows how using multiple quantum computers together with classical computations will mean that actually this becomes a reality much sooner than they were originally forecasting because they won't require as many qubits to be entangled. And finally, um, as I was saying, CERN are looking at using uh, quantum computation um, after the success of finding the Higgs boson to start investigating some of the other areas that they're finding intractable at the moment. So our view is that this is coming down the tracks. You know, we can't tell you exactly when this is going to over, you know, uh, overtake conventional computing for these kind of tasks, but it looks to me, you know, if I drew the graphs and, and stuck my own finger in the air, it's looking like 2024 is going to be the likely-ish kind of time frame. Um, IBM is not going to tell you when it is, but it, you know, if you were if you were to extrapolate from what you're seeing at the moment, I think 2024 looks a pretty safe bet, actually. Um, and the idea there is to is to is to really find a real world use for quantum computing that we can show to the world uh, and and show that you know we are solving new problems that we couldn't do before. To get there, we're going to need more powerful computers. We've been building the number of qubits in our chips, and we've been increasing the coherence time because all this relies on you being able to keep these quantum computational chips isolated from the vagaries of the real world and from the noise and from uh, and, and from any interference because anything interacting between the computational state of the quantum computer and the real world will collapse the quantum state. So we've been getting the chips bigger but we've also been maintaining their coherence longer which means we can do more work on the chips and this is part of a much larger um, uh, roadmap um, which is is important to understand, I think, because 
it's more than just the fundamental engineering of the hardware now that we're working on. It's about making this consumable and making it accessible to people to actually understand and use. So you'll notice along the bottom here that the, the, the sizes of the, of the chips get bigger. Um, for IBM to be publishing something like this from IBM Research, I think you'll probably gather is relatively unusual. Uh, normally speaking, if something's from IBM Research uh, or indeed any IBM chart talking about the futures, it tends not to have years across the top, but this one does. Um, so, first of all, bigger, more powerful chips. Secondly, finding new ways to integrate them together. Um, there are several different ways that we're looking at to actually ensure that multiple chips can act as one. So you don't need a, a 4,000 qubit chip. What you need is multiple smaller ones. You can network together and maintain a single coherent computation across all of them. Um, the actual way of doing that means that it's quite complicated to lay out an algorithm onto the chips because you need to know um, what's the point at which you can cut the algorithm across the chips to make it the most efficient running on the chips. So we're working on the libraries to do that all automatically. So today you don't need to know that you're working on a multi-core processor. In the future, you won't need to know that you're working across multiple quantum processing units. All that will be hidden beneath the waves of the Kiskit runtime as we talk about it there. And even better than that, we, we've just sent live the first serverless capabilities, which allows you to actually interact with a quantum computer as if it was just a web service out there. You can ask it for a, a probability distribution from a series of algorithms or an estimate from a series of algorithms without really knowing anything about the quantum computer at all, um, simply by determining, you know, here's my problem, here's the uh, algorithm I want you to use, here's the output I want to receive, off you go. Um, and that kind of process will continue, I think. You know, we are seeing the, the we've already, you know, got quantum computers out in the wild, we've got them in our own data centers, we've installed them around the world. Um, and increasingly, this is what it's gonna look like. So this is a view from the top. Today, uh, a quantum computer is just a single uh, cryogenic chamber. That's the hexagon in the middle. In the future, what we're going to see is, is multiple hexagons wired together um, by fiber optics uh, between, them, between the cryostats. And those control units coming out the sides, um, one of the latest things we've just started to do is put the control circuits for the quantum computers actually inside the cryogenic chambers. This will massively reduce the power that quantum computers take, which is already an awful lot less than supercomputers take. And the racks down the side, you can see there are the conventional computers or the GPUs, which are used to supplement the power of the quantum computer and control uh, its execution of algorithms. And this is a beautiful artist impression of the machine that we're planning to re release next year, um, which will do precisely that. So that was, I think, 30 seconds under 20 minutes. Um, it was fast, and but it was I'm not happy to take any questions. Well, don't worry, there's a surfeit of questions. Um, and in fact, we'll start with a few. I'm gonna knock off two quick ones and a long one from John Schlesinger. Uh, John's asking, uh, Richard, is it still estimated to need 10,000 physical qubits to implement one noise suppressed logical qubit? Uh, yes, it is sort of, but we are pretty confident now that you don't need logical qubits to actually do something that's of real use in the real world. So 
in the latest announcements we've made, we've talked about how we're going to be doing error mitigation and doing that within the context of the actual uh, quantum hardware itself, so that basically you can run an algorithm. But so 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 yes, that is the right answer. But no, you don't need that to do quantum advantage. Okay. Um, John, John was also asked, how many of the 275 bits can be simultaneously entangled and for how long? Uh, well, we're talking about, um, uh, we're getting close to half to a millisecond. Yeah, so it's it's that kind of duration, all right? Um, what What we're really looking for is the ability to not just entangle them, but also then keep them entangled for, you know, 100 gate executions or whatever, yeah? So... The challenge we just announced is 100 by 100, yeah, which is 100 qubits for 100 gate executions, uh, gate operations. And if we can do that, then we, we know we're in the in the ballpark of doing things that are, are that no supercomputer could ever do. Yeah. Okay. Uh, just to show the audience is on the ball, and I'll come back to Richard Sage again with a with a real question. But he does point out that LNG carriers don't carry containers. Um, anyway. Um, <laughs> Yeah. That's a good point. Yeah, and and my father was a marine engineer, and yeah, and and believe me, I'd, I'd bizarrely I'd seen that on the slide, and it hadn't actually sunk in. Yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, Maurice Schenk uh, here, a little skeptical. Do you really have 433 entangled qubits that are usable for general purpose? Uh, no, I mean, so so let's be absolutely clear. All the quantum chips and their capabilities are published on the IBM website. So you can literally go in and, and look at the individual chips. So the 433 chip, the Osprey, has only just been announced. And just as when we announced the Eagle last year, um, it's not capable of doing that at this moment. Yeah. Um, but that's the intention. You know, that's where it's going. So what you'll see is multiple. I think we're already on the second iteration of the Osprey. Uh, and you'll see multiple iterations of the same chip. So, you know, just as we did with the Eagle and the Falcon, I think the Falcon's on release 10 or 11 or 12 at the moment. You know, so mm -hmm. what we're doing is 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 in, is using the smaller chips to improve the design of the bigger chips in certain areas and using the bigger chips to, to solve other problems. So the bigger chips are all that are really there to work out how we get the micro signals in and out of the machine um, without disturbing the you know the machine and, and getting the control circuitry you know, working and everything else for the for the big, whereas the smaller ones are you are, are what we're using to improve the actual individual gate performance and this kind of thing. So we're deliberately doing this in multiple different streams at once. Yeah, if we had 433 qubits uh, that were stable for 433 gate operations, you know, we wouldn't be talking about quantum advantage being in the in the future. <laughs> Um, the conversation seems to be boiling around three areas, so uh, artificial intelligence and intelligence questions, uh, things to do with uh, NP problems, and finally, um, kind of usability. So just, just to outline where we might spend the next uh, 10 minutes or so. Um, so uh, briefly, um, I guess what I'd probably like to start with is Trevor Hilder. You know, is it possible or, you know, that the human brain does the same thing? Uh, and of course, you'll know the discussions of Roger Penrose and microtubules, but uh, uh, if you wanted to have a just just a quick canter through that, um, my own personal view. Well, I mean, I, I read Roger Penrose when I was at, when I was when I was in school. Um, it's that long ago, um, but but I, I, it convinced me then. It doesn't convince me now. All right. I mean, I I I think I'm much more of a thousand brains um, kind of man. 
Um, that's a much more convincing explanation to me of how the brain works and why it, and, and explains an awful lot of its weird um, uh, capabilities and its faults. Much better, I think, than any Penrose quantum kind of explanation ever will. Can you just give a 15 second reference on that one for the audience? The yeah, so the thousand brains hypothesis is basically that the, 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 the neocortex, um, which all looks very self-similar, is basically just a whole pile of tubes that go down and all do much the same kind of thing. Um, and, and fundamentally what you get is different parts of the brain specializing in different things that are all then connected laterally across from one another. But basically, in a, you know, essentially, you know, when you have a thought, what is it, what it essentially is, is a consensus that's come to um, laterally across those many, many thousands of different tubes, um, uh, which are part of the neocortex going down into the cortex. So it, it, it's, it's, a, it's a different way of thinking about the brain because it's, but it does explain an awful lot of why we're capable of doing, of what, of what we're very good at doing, which is synthesizing lots of different senses from different ways and, and synthesizing them into an opinion. And then sometimes that opinion will change and flip backwards and forwards in an optical illusion, for example. Um, but we'll only ever be able to hold one opinion at the same time, which is another reason why possibly it's not really quantum, you know. Yeah. Um, in, in we'll, we'll, I'll hold us to quantum now, if I may. But thank <laughs> you. That was good, good to do that. Um, so, so the second thing is, uh, John Schlesinger's more substantive question was, quantum computers will not be able to solve the traveling salesman problem. It's an NP difficult problem. So he's holding up me as well as you. Uh, uh, you know, why, why do you think the opposite? I believe quantum computers are not exponentially better, maybe just polynomially better. Yeah, it, it has been shown that there is a quad, we can achieve a quadratic speed up. Okay, so that's that's been demonstrated. Yeah, but in reality, you know, I, I, you know, the the algorithms that will be useful early on in quantum computers are those that can achieve an exponential speed up, which is not that many. Yeah, so. Traveling salesman is is an exponential speed up, but it's just you know it'll be quite some time before the inaccuracies and the um, and the overheads of executing that on the combination of conventional and quantum computing can be overcome to make it into something that's going to be you know better than the state of the art in the supercomputing area. So so yeah, it's it's I I go with the halfway house on that one. Okay. Um, we've got quite a few here about encryption. I'll just let me read these off quickly. Uh, whenever I, uh, this is Peter Cousins, whenever I read about quantum computers, the concern is raised that they will defeat encryption and passwords. Uh, is that a real concern? Hugh Purser, from a security point of view, will legacy systems be at the mercy of quantum computing? Uh, Michael Kelly, will, will quantum computing present a risk to our current FS security models? Uh, for example, future central bank digital currencies, and finally, uh, Jeremy Wilson, forgive my ignorance, but uh, will quantum computing transform the practical value of blockchain, which, uh, uh, Jeremy, I'm plump, plumping here into the security issue as well. Uh, so some quick comments on that, Richard. Yeah, I mean, put it this way. Um, if, if, if things go the way we think they're going to go, then sooner or later, and it will be later. I mean, we're talking probably about a decade, two decades, three decades. You know, there will be quantum computers big enough that's going to crack today's encryptions. Yeah, um, which means that if you've got data that's that's valuable now and is still going to be valuable in 30 years' time, don't let anybody nick it, even if it is encrypted, um, because they will decrypt it in you know maybe 30 years' time. So we do need to be worried about this stuff. 
um, we do need to be thinking about it. We do need to be putting quantum safe algorithms in place as quickly as possible. We've already put them on the mainframe, yeah, for, <laughs> for very obvious reasons, because uh, a lot of the world's most precious data is held on mainframes. Um, but the rest of the world is going to have to follow suit and, and maybe it's not quickly, but you know, it's, it's the crown jewels first, the rest can, can follow in a slightly more leisurely place. Yeah. And a reminder to the audience that, uh, back in 2018, uh, Maury Shank was online and asked a question, uh, uh, did a report, uh, which is in your chat room on the quantum countdown. Uh, further, the worship company of IT is going to be holding some events with FS club and Xian in March or April next year, uh, very much not on uh, do we need to move to quantum resistant encryption, but how do we set a date to move? And as a financial center, uh, this is really important for us. Uh, speaking yeah. of a financial center, Hugh Purser uh, has got a question here for you, Richard. What does the economics of quantum computing look like? How much do supercomputers <laughs> cost now? Will quantum computing be a rented or borrowed resource for the foreseeable future? Um, certainly that's been my view that you've been moving to effectively uh, hardware as a service uh, online. Yeah, it, it, I would have said that as well. And, and, I, and I'm sure that's our main intended model is to go the serverless route and, and access the stuff via the cloud. Having said that, we've already put physical machines into the Fraunhofer Institute and into Cleveland Clinic and into, you know, there are physical IBM quantum machines sitting out there in the wild. Um, I think it'll be the exception, not the rule. Yeah, I think that there's obviously certain places for security reasons or whatever else, they may want their own dedicated quantum computer. Um, but I think the vast majority of people will consume it, uh, you know, on, on, on a pay-as-you-go plan or as a, you know, uh, some kind of other, you know, cloud-based plan. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, then we move on to a, a set of questions, uh, somewhat, I guess, looking at what do you want me to do now? So. Uh, Maury Shank, the number of uh, qubits required to solve problems like those you describe is large, uh, certainly from you know today's current quantum computers, yet progress in qubit numbers has slowed in recent years. When do you expect quantum computers that can solve practical problems? Uh, Richard Sage again, if no quantum computer currently does something better than traditional computers, what are companies like Exxon actually uh, doing at the moment? <laughs> yeah, so there's yeah, some very good questions there. So, you know, my own personal view, it's it looks like 2024 to me. That's when that's when that crossover point happens, where error mitigation, the size of the qubits, the coherence levels, and all these things, you know, start coming together to to to, to overtake supercomputers. Yeah, at which point you you've essentially a quantum supercomputer that's that's using a combination of of hybrid technologies. Um, in terms of the um, uh, sorry, what was the segment of the question? It, it just was a, there was a second element to it. Uh, second element. No, I think you've covered it, actually. I think that, that, that's fine. We'll, we'll move on on this one. Um, okay. Yeah, uh, I believe that, you know, one of the things that we're, we're looking at here, of course, is uh, complex modeling, really. And I've got mm -hmm. two questions related to that. Um, one, from, um, one from Bob Harris, which is some quantum computing models discover things, you know, 3D structures of proteins. Uh, but if quantum computing is used to simulate very complex systems, for example, global finance, how does one? It's sort of on the edge of the subject area, but important. Sorry, I, I lost you for that. I, I got you got to the as global finance, and then it just 
if quantum computing if quantum computing is used to simulate very complex systems such as global yeah. finance how does one validate the model outputs <laughs> you can't um i mean you know it's it's a, another brilliant question but it, it, it all you can really do is is the way quantum algorithms generally work is they're scalable by the qubit and they're scalable by the depth and they tend to grow as as, as a as a square you know so basically you know you put a more powerful problem in it'll the, the, the depth gets longer and the and the number of qubits gets it's more and and you can generally prove the algorithms working all you can do is is infer that it's going to continue to work because you worked on the smaller problems and the smaller problems until you got to the edge of where you could actually verify that it was still working if you don't change the fundamental shape of the algorithm you just grow its depth and you grow its the number of qubits but it's still the fundamentally the same algorithm you can infer that it's probably still working but it as you say how do you prove it you can't really because you know there is no you know you can you can control some inputs and and and, and check that the the known outputs in even in those extreme conditions are still true i mean there's various things you can do but fundamentally when you put in a really complex scenario do you know that the right things come out no of course you don't um you, all you can do is observe what really happens <laughs> okay um i guess uh, you know when we're, when we're when we're examining this area what one of the problems is understanding the output here and uh, richard sage is asking just a bit of clarity uh, Oh, I've lost you again. Is output effectively always a probability distribution function? Uh, no, no. It is some... output from a, a QC. Effect. Yeah, so, 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 yeah, okay. so there, there are two types of output, really. There's, there's either an estimate, a, a number, yeah, um, which you can interpret how you like. Um, for certain kind of problems, that's, that's kind of like pretty straightforward. Um, you still, to get that number, you probably had to run the circuits tens of thousands of times to get you know, the number out. Um, or the other alternative is the probability distribution, which is going to be the, the output of multiple qubits run over even more circuit runs. You know, so um, but but pretty much everything either is one or the other of those. Yes. For some reason, I'm losing you. I'm not losing your sound. Okay. Now, um, you know, one of the things that I've I've always been uh, curious about. Sorry, one of the things I've been curious about here has been whether or not you know Moore's law takes another leap. So you said 2024 would be the crossover point. What would yeah. you suggest people use to estimate the rate of speed up from that? Is it another Moore's law type approach? Uh, yeah, it, well, yes. I mean, uh, the exponential, the exponential. I don't know. I mean, it, it's it, 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 we're using something called quantum volume, um, which is a very good measure of the usefulness of a quantum computer. Okay, which is basically essentially the number of qubits times the circuit depth that you can go to and this kind of thing, which we talked about before. Um, so quantum volume is doubling, yeah, and it's doubling at least once, once if not twice a year at the moment. So it varies, it hasn't quite stabilized yet, but it's it's definitely on a Moore's law type trajectory. Um, and the other one is is circuit operations a second, which is much more familiar to uh, people who followed IBM a while. You know, if, you, if you're used to MIPS and, and everything else, then CLOPS is the, is the new MIPS. Um, and and CLOPS is it's it's the so early doors of CLOPS at the moment that it's going up by many orders of magnitude so far every year. So um, I, I think it'll take a while to stabilize um, mm -hmm. because I think the gains are so large at the moment. 
you know, it, it will stabilise to a Moore's Law type thing, but what it will stabilise at, I don't honestly know at the moment. Okay, and a final question from the audience. This is uh, from David Penny. Uh, how do you think we can begin to use quantum computing capabilities to address machine learning? Um, any any yeah. thoughts on? So 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 that was you saw that I remember the second half of the question now, which was um, uh, which is why uh, why are Exxon Mobil using it if they can't get quantum advantage? The thing is, you can you can build the algorithms now, okay, and you can test them and you can see the work. I mean, I, I was talking about the smart, smarter payment stuff. You know, we're able to now use the quantum computers even as they stand to get you know to get small state of the art improvements in accuracy on real world problems. Okay, now we can't use that in the real world yet because you know Visa and other people have got slightly higher transaction rates than my quantum computer can cope with at the moment. Yeah. Um, but 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 fundamentally you can get the you can start building the skills and building the algorithms and you know as the computation capability gets better and as the circuit depths get longer and as the number of qubits get you can you know those algorithms will play out in that ability to take on board more dimensions of the problem or simply get more accurate you know so you know that's why we've got all these people you know we've got over 150 companies and, and organizations i think now in our quantum network who are all working simultaneously on 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 these kind of problems because they know that if they crack the problems now that when the hardware becomes available uh, and the software becomes available for that matter um in in the forms i've been talking about that they'll be in a position to use it okay um so the final bit was we're going to ask a little question on uh, to the audience do you think quantum computers will change the world uh, um so i'll just uh, launch that question now uh we've heard peter peter whilst uh, whilst the audience is answering that uh and again they're as quick as ever um i was uh, curious about I i've always said that it's not about smaller cheaper faster it's about different types of problems and i've used two analogies uh to try and get it across to business people one is that this is a bit like those uh, crystal ball or at-risk uh, Monte Carlo simulations, but done instantaneously. And another one, uh, somebody who started on analog computers in the early mid-70s, that it's very much an analog computer type approach. You set the, the physical system up and it delivers the answer. Any comments on those two analogies? Yeah, I, th I think, I think. I mean, the first one is, is, is not a perfect analogy. Um, the second one, I think, is closer, actually. Um, and, and and by the way, watch this space for analog computers. I think they're going to make a comeback. You know, uh, yeah. I think one of the ways we can really reduce the machine learning costs of of large scale machine learning algorithms is by using analog computers. So don't don't expect that technology to disappear. I think it's going to come back in uh, in earnest in the near future. Yeah. Well, what you also saw there was that uh, you're an excellent ambassador. You've convinced uh, <laughs> the audience. Uh, almost three quarters that uh, quantum computers are going to change the world sadly we we have run out of time um i think it's been absolutely fascinating to see uh you know really what a great ambassador you are richard and we've covered a lot of things you know exponential versus polynomial or even logarithmic time and speed up pnp problems theories of the brain economics encryption i mean the great thing is the sign i think of a revolution is when it really does genuinely touch on so many areas of interest to all of us so thank you very much for coming on board today. And I can tell that we're going to have you back many, many times if you'll let us. Uh, I think each year as we try and see uh, what is the progress of this fascinating technology that uh, 
three quarters of the audience thinks will change the world. And I'm afraid uh, I'm with them on that. So thank you very much. Michael and everybody who joined, thank you for your time. Much appreciated.